be found on page 2 of your bulletin. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, Grace Downtown. I am so glad to see you all this evening. It has been far too long, and I realized that when I parked my vehicle and I started walking to Calvary. Um, And I came in here and I told Glenn, he's like, I didn't doubt you. I was a little late. He said, I didn't doubt you. I said, yeah, I started going to Calvary, and being the good preacher he is, he said, you can never go wrong going to Calvary. I said, praise God, but I made it here. So (laughs) I'm really glad to be here with you all, and I want to invite you to Join me as we turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, and we're going to be working through verses 9 through 17, but before we start, uh, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we are grateful to be gathered together in your name. We're grateful for your word and the ways that you change our lives through your word, the ways that you humble us where we need to be brought low, the ways that you comfort us where we're suffering pain, the ways that you embolden us to live the life of love. And we pray that this evening would be another one of those times where you meet us, where we need you, and you do your work of transforming our lives. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. We ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid... My parents used to buy me these thousand-piece puzzles. Um, It was their way of getting rid of me for a little while, right? And so I would take these thousand-piece puzzles, and I would go off, and I would try to put these things together. And I'd be sitting in a pile of pieces scattered all over the place. And most of the time when I started these projects, I would be hopeful, but it wouldn't be long before I was absolutely frustrated and I grew weary of the whole project. And I remember on one particular occasion, I was trying to put one of these thousand-piece puzzles together. Pieces were all around me. I'm sitting there frustrated, and my dad walked in, and 
He stood there for a minute and observed me. And then he said, son, son, look, what you have to do is you have to look at the top of the puzzle box. You got to get that picture fixed in your mind. And that is the way that you're going to be able to put all of these pieces together. That is the key. Get the picture on the top of the puzzle box in your mind so that you can get all of these pieces together. Diversity is a buzzword of importance in this cultural moment, isn't it? It's all over the place. We see it reflected in the media. All you have to do is look at a Target ad and you will see a bunch of ambiguously brown people on that Target ad. I'm ambiguously brown. You know what that means? It's, the, it's a person and you're like, where are they from? Who are they? Are they? They must be my people, right? Like, they put all these different people on because they're trying to appeal to diversity. Uh, corporations are adding new C-suite positions to create these chief officers of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Conference speakers are under increasing pressure to make sure that their speaker lineups and, and all of the people that are going to be representing at their conference show a concern for diversity, equity, and inclusion. One could argue that we've never seen such a concentrated social effort to achieve cross-cultural diversity. But here's the sad irony. When we look around at the state of our society, all we see is a bunch of scattered puzzle pieces. And it often seems impossible to put those pieces together. And for those of us who have been doing the work for a while, our network has been trying to do this cross-cultural work for a while. However hopeful we may have started out, over time, you find yourself frustrated and sometimes you grow weary of the whole project of trying to bring different people together. The past few years have brought a growing polarization, tribalism, and racial retrenchment. We've become estranged from our neighbors, and we've become estranged from one another inside of the church. We have what Ed Gilbreth calls the reconciliation blues. However hopeful we may have started off, many of us are starting to grow weary. And that is why we need Advent. This is why we need Advent. Advent is for the weary. Advent is the season where we honestly face the disappointments and the brokenness and the suffering and the pain that characterize life in this present world. But this is held in dynamic tension with all of the glories of the world to come. We live our lives in the tension between the tragedy of this world and the triumph of the world to come. In Advent, we begin in the darkness, but we move toward the light. For these next four weeks of Advent, the network pastors are going to be working through a series entitled, A Weary World rejoices from that famous Christmas carol or Advent hymn or however you want to call it. We're going to be working through this series and the, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at different longings that we have and we're going to be exploring the book of Revelation to see how it is that Jesus in Advent meets those longings. 
And tonight we are going to turn to Revelation chapter 7 where we get a look at the top of the puzzle box to see how it is that Jesus meets our longing for cross-cultural community. We all long for connection with others. None of us enjoy the idea of feeling discomfort or awkwardness or a sense of estrangement from other people. Deep down, we long to be connected with our neighbors and with one another. And we're going to see this evening how it is that Jesus addresses that longing. And we're going to approach this text through two points as we consider the coming reunion and the coming Redeemer. So let's look at our first point where we see the coming reunion. As we arrive in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, as he put it in chapter 1, verse 9. The emperor Domitian required citizens to confess that he, as the Caesar, was Lord and God. But John knew that he had a far more important citizenship and a greater loyalty to the only one who could rightly call himself Lord and God, and that was Jesus Christ. And the Lord calls John to minister to the church in his day in order to call them to endurance and persecution and assurance of victory. Those are the two things that John really ministers to God's people through the book of Revelation. He wants to give us endurance in persecution and assurance of victory. And he does this by giving them this astonishing picture of the final scene of God's story. So what did John see exactly? Take a look at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from all nations and peoples and languages. The first thing that John saw was diversity. Now here's what's interesting. John could have kept it generic. He could have reported in the book of Revelation, and then I saw a whole bunch of folk, right? He could have kept it bland and generic, but no. He names the diversity, and not only does he name the diversity, he actually piles up the language in this text to show the scope of the diversity that he witnessed around the throne. He breaks it down even into dialects and diverse tribal distinctions. In other words, he doesn't just see Nigerians. He sees Yoruba and Igbo people. He doesn't just see Kenyans. He sees Maasai and Kamba people. He doesn't just see Chinese. He sees Tibetan and Mongolian people. He sees Arabs and Americans. Bengalis and Punjabis, Danes and Dominicans, Jews and Japanese, Persians and Portuguese, Scottish and Somali, Peruvians and Polynesians. John saw the diversity and he wants the church to see it too. He wants the church to see as well. And this right here gives us an occasion to repent because it is far too often the case that people actually become invisible to us. I was talking with one of my friends who, who lives on the street. His name's Mr. Jones. And whenever Mr. Jones isn't cursing me out, he's my best friend. Um, 
<laughs> it's always one or the other. There's no in between. He's not lukewarm. And we were sitting down one time and I said, Mr. Jones, I got a question for you. If you had to help someone to understand what is the hardest thing about the life that you live, what would you tell them? And without missing a beat, he didn't say it was the pangs of hunger in his belly. He didn't say it was the inclement weather when he was living outdoors. He said it was the sense that no one could see him. It was this sense of invisibility. But if there's any community where people ought to be seen, it's in God's church. In God's church, there are to be no invisible people. We often, when we do see people, make a different choice. And that choice is to hammer down their distinctions and to require that they assimilate before we will accept them. We all do this to the other. But this text shows us that God loves the diversity of all that he has created. And if we are going to be his people, we must love what God loves and think his thoughts after him. But take a moment to think about the importance of where this, this scene is given. This scene is given to the church at the very beginning of its mission. Why? Because God wanted this vision to mark his church as they went out on mission. This was meant to give them a sense of what their work was all about. It was all about getting that great congregation around the throne. They needed this encouragement and this orientation. Unity in diversity was unheard of in the first century world. But the church gets this picture so that the Lord can enlist them as participants in the kingdom work. Now, as they were going out into the world with the message of the gospel, this scene was meant to help them to endure because things got squirrely when they went out into the world. It was challenging. We don't even have to imagine it. Just read the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts and you see all of the challenges that took place when they went into different contexts to minister to different people. And once they ministered to those folks and they brought them back into the same community, things only got more difficult because now they had to figure out how to live life together and love one another in the context of difference. Inevitably, those first century Christians experienced some of the same frustrations and weariness that you and I face today when it comes to pressing in on cross-cultural community. But the Lord gives them this scene to encourage them. He was saying to them, it shall be done. It shall be done. Even when you're weary, when you feel like you can't give anymore, when you feel like you don't have any more that you can take, you can look at this final picture and know that the Lord will bring it to pass. He's the one who initiated this work of cross-cultural love. He's the one that sustains it. He's the one that resources it. And he's the one that will bring it to fulfillment. That's good news for us. But we must also remember that this is a picture of glory. This is a picture of the future. And I often hear people suggest that the problem with all of our divisions is that we talk about our differences too much. 
We talk about our differences too much. If we would just stop talking about our differences, then we would all be able to get together. But here's the thing. We have to realize that this text is showing us that even in glory, our ethnic distinctions and diversity are not erased, but rather they are channeled to accentuate the celebration of the Lord. Why else would we be given this, this distinction, this, this, this distinctiveness, this diverse picture, and, and all these people named by their diversities? Because it matters to God, and we don't need to forget about our differences. Here's the deal. The problem with our divisions is not about the differences around us. It's about the depravity within us. That is what causes all the problems. It's the depravity within us that causes us to alienate people. It's depravity within us that causes us to create unjust relationships. It's the depravity within us that causes us to disregard the sufferings and the cries of our neighbors. The problem is not that we have differences. The problem is that we have depravity. And only God can deal with that. Unity in diversity mattered enough to get a mention in glory. And God is trying to challenge his people. It's the depravity within that we must wrestle with. That's what causes us to choose fear, suspicion, and conflict when we encounter difference, rather than faith, curiosity, and communion. But how are all of these different puzzle pieces put together in Revelation 7? This brings us to our second and final point, the coming Redeemer. John, when he encounters this vision of the final scene, He sees diversity. But the very next thing that John witnesses is doxology. Look at what these diverse people are doing. Verses 9 through 10. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John sees doxology pulling the diversity together. It's a scene of worship. But you need to understand what was so profound about this scene. What would cause them to respond in such a way, in such a unified voice? What could warrant that kind of response from them? You have to see who they were seeing. You have to see who they were seeing. And in order to get that, Listen to how John describes what they were seeing in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is how John describes it. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Now go back to Revelation 7 and see why this diverse group is gathered in unity around the throne. They are laying eyes on this God and Savior, and it's absolutely overwhelming. The G-forces of his glory are pressing in on them, and they are overwhelmed. They are overwhelmed by who he is and what he has done, and it brings a spontaneous response. Salvation belongs to our God. They're not whispering. I want you to picture that this is the game-winning touchdown of the Super Bowl. And everyone, this, this diverse crowd is saying, salvation belongs to our God. This is the scene. It's absolutely mesmerizing. Each one of these people, of this diverse crowd, each one of them had a story to tell of what he had done to get them in that throne room. They could tell the story of many sufferings that he brought them through. They could tell the story of how he kept them through their losses. They could tell the story of how Jesus did a work in their lives that overcame all of their failures, all of their sins, and all of their faults in order to bring them to this place. There's an old gospel song called, I Shall Wear a Crown. And at the end of the song, it says this. I'm going to put on my robe and tell the story how I made it over. The synopsis of the story, how we made it over, is salvation belongs to our God. It wasn't because you had a good career. It wasn't because you were a likable person. It wasn't because you had a slick resume. It wasn't because you pulled your moral act together. It was because of the grace of the Lamb. That is how we make it over. That's what their testimony is. Each and every cultural group and each and every ethnicity and every tribe and language group found in Christ a Savior specifically suited to their deepest needs. And now they are celebrating him. They are, they are able at this point to celebrate the fact that Jesus took their grocery list of sins and stamped on it. Canceled. Canceled. You see what's happening in this passage? Their pain has now turned to praise. Their life of worry has turned to worship. Their frustrations have given way to fulfillment. Their tears have translated into triumph and their faith has become sight. This is the explanation for how this diversity is brought into a unity. But I want us to think about all the things that are not in the center of this scene. Partisan politics isn't in the center of this scene holding the diversity together. In other words, it doesn't matter what your candidate does or if your candidate gets into office, nobody who sits at 16 Pennsylvania Ave, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is able to pull this diversity together. You know what else isn't in the center? 
shared hobbies, shared causes, or national origin. None of these are the reason for the unity in diversity. It is the lamb. It is the lamb. But there's something very interesting here. Notice the text. John calls him the lamb. And if you are a student of the Bible, you know that there are many names that Jesus is given. Think about it. In Scripture, Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's called Emmanuel. He's called the Son of Man. He's called the Son of God, the Son of David. He's the bright and morning star. But here, John names him as the Lamb. And you know what that teaches us? A very crucial point for Christian thinking around cross-cultural diversity. And it's this. John names him as the Lamb. And what that shows us is that cross-centeredness is what keeps cross-cultural together. It is cross-centeredness that resources the life of cross-cultural love. I have plenty of diversity, equity, and inclusion experts in my church. And every time I talk to them, they're brilliant people. Every time I talk to them, they're expressing new frustrations about how things are not getting to where they would like them to be. The tools of modernity are not enough to get us there. But we see in this text the one who is. And in this scene, we see that it's love, gratitude, and reverence for the Lamb that unifies this diversity. And this should shape our lives now. That's why God gives us this picture of the end of the story. Because he wants it to shape the way that we live in the middle of the story. This is meant to shape how we love and who we love. The scope of it. This scene is just another way of answering that age-old question. And who is my neighbor? Remember that? This is something of an answer. This is something of an answer because the diversity of the crowd in this scene, they got there, guess how? Not by a holy zap from the Lord, but through his appointed means of bringing that final scene about, his church. Here we see our responsibility as well, that we get to play a part in seeing that final scene come to reality. And these people... They're wearing white robes and waving palm branches. And that might seem strange, but that was simply a sign of victory. And I want you to think about this. This first century church was a marginalized group. Think about the the, the station of Christians in the first century. They were being persecuted. They were being killed. They were being turned into torches for the emperors to light their gardens. At any moment, someone could burst through the doors of their house church gathering and take them all to prison and have them tortured. They could rot in a cell. They were marginalized. But think about what it meant for these marginalized believers to know that they would one day be caught up into the victory of the Lamb. Maybe they looked at one another and said, you know, I think I can keep pressing on. 
I, I think I can keep on going. I think I can endure the disappointments and the trials of this life. I think that I can maintain some resilience in this fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think I can keep pressing on. And I want you to see, beloved, that the Lord has a word for the marginalized. And so must we. We must never lead the marginalized to believe that God has nothing to say to them. We have a word of hope and victory for those who have known nothing but loss. And you know how you get it? Simple faith in Christ alone. That's it. It's that simple. If you're here tonight and you're exploring the Christian faith and you're working through and you're not sure about all this stuff, I want you to know something. You you believe, you have faith. For example, if I looked in your medicine cabinet, I could pull out a bottle and read something off the ingredient list. You have no idea what that was. But you know that if you take it, it will make you feel better. It will make you well. You don't have to know all the ins and outs of Christian theology in order to know that if you trust in Christ, he will make you well. It's that simple, y'all. John saw diversity and John saw doxology. And if we put those two together, what we witness in Revelation 7 is doxological diversity. And that is to say that the reason why the church pursues cross-cultural love is for the glory of God. That is our purpose. But not only that, when we are glorifying the Lord, the result is cross-cultural love. It's both the purpose and the result. And why is that important? Here's why. Because many people think that this call to cross-cultural love is about being politically correct. Okay? Now, I've often said it's not about being politically correct. But then the more and more I thought about that, I said, you know, actually, depends on what you mean. Because the ultimate politic of the Christian is Jesus is Lord. That's the most political statement imaginable. That is the politic that drives us, but not the modern day partisan political game. It's not it's not something that we do because it's politically correct. It's not something that we do out of the impulses of pragmatism because it works. Why do we do it? Well, it works. If you want to have an effective modern-day workforce, you got to have diversity, and so it's useful, right? But what happens when it's no longer useful? You give it up. It's not based upon pragmatism. It's not based upon popularity. It's not just because it's a popular thing these days, and everyone has to tweet their tweets and, and make their public statements because what happens when it's no longer popular? No, we don't do it because it works. We don't do it because it's popular. We do it because it brings glory to the Lord who made all of this diversity, who celebrates all this diversity, and who will one day redeem this diversity. We live into this final scene for the glory of God. But what should you take away from this text this evening? few things. I want you to see that we, as God's church, we need a better ethic than the one that's given to us in pop culture. You know what the ethic that's given to us in pop culture? Tolerance, right? We got to be tolerant. Everyone knows that that's sort of the, the, the rules of the game these days, right? You got to be tolerant. But here's the thing, and we all know it. I just want to name it. You can tolerate someone 
while you look down your nose at them and condescend toward them. You can tolerate someone while they're suffering over there and you're not doing scrap about it. Tolerance is not enough, but it's the best that this world can marshal. However, we need a better ethic, and that ethic is the Christian ethic of love. Love will not allow you to remain passive while the beloved is suffering. Love will not allow you to remain okay with the estrangement. Love will not allow you to shut down your table. Rather, it, char- it, it challenges you to be countercultural. Because while the rest of the world is building higher walls, the church is supposed to be building longer tables so that we can get people around. That is who we are. We need a better ethic, though. Next, we need a better ecclesiology, which is to say we need a better self-understanding as the church. There are a lot of different versions of church these days. Some people think of church as sort of like a religious country club for the well-mannered, the well-dressed, and the well-heeled. It's not a place for those who are broke down and got problems, right? Everyone comes spiffy because all they need from God is a little pick-me-up, a little moral direction, right? That's not what the church is. Some people treat the church like it's their personal lecture hall where they come in and they get their information download and then they go out and they deem themselves disciples. That is not what the church is. You know how the church is depicted in the New Testament? As God's missionary community, sent out into the world to spread his love and to extend his kingdom. We need to know who we are because when God sends us out, he sends us out with intent. And the intent is to extend the welcome of God and to give people a foretaste of the life to come. Now, Pastor Mike kind of stole some of my thunder earlier. The, 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 the appetizer. I'm going to put it to you like this, and I hope you remember it. I like going to the mall. I don't like going to the mall to shop. I like going to the mall because there's this wonderful place in the mall called the food court <laughs> where these wonderful people stand there with these trays. They got this delicious bourbon chicken with little toothpicks in them, right? Now, Every time I step into the food court and I see him, I make a direct line and I start walking over and I and they say, sir, would you like some bourbon chicken? And I say, why, yes, yes, I would. And I take that bourbon chicken and I, I only get two steps before it gets good to me. And I'm like, ooh, I need some more of that. So I make the long walk around the food court. And since I'm ambiguously brown, the next time I come around, I say, hola, como estas? Que es eso? And they kind of look at me like this. I'm are you the same? No, no, no. Say, quiero eso, right? Like, but then I got one more in me, right? So the next time I come around, I say, assalamu alaikum, right? You know, just, just keep them guessing. But why are those people standing out there with those little trays and those little pieces of meat? Here's why. They want you to get a little taste so that you'll come in and get the real thing. We, as the church, are supposed to be a little taste of the love that is to come in glory, We're supposed to be a little taste of the community and the mutual affection and service that is to come in glory. Our hope is that people would experience us as the church and say, that was good. I want the whole thing. That is our calling. We're supposed to be the movie trailer of glory. We're supposed to be the brochure of the world to come. We need a better ecclesiology. And for the purposes of this text, 
living together in cross-cultural love, loving across lines of difference, walking with the kind of humility that pauses, that weighs and prays instead of rendering an immediate judgment when something rubs us as strange. We are to have a different way of navigating the world and navigating difference. We need a better ecclesiology. We also need to remember the importance of means. I'm going to I'm going to put it to you like this. Growing up as a kid in western Pennsylvania, I remember the blizzard of 1993. And my dad worked for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. He worked on the roads and did snow removal, so he always knew what was coming down the line. And so the night before the big storm was supposed to happen, my dad had this little glimmer in his eye. He always called snow little pennies from heaven because he got paid overtime when he was out there working on the road. So anytime it was snowing, he was excited, right? And he said, well, Junior, better get your shovel ready. In the next 36 hours, it was something like 28 or 36 inches of snow dropped. So when my dad called and said, yeah, your your school's going to be canceled, all the excitement that I immediately felt drained away. Because I lived beside my grandparents and their best friend, Miss Ivanko. So in the summer, I wasn't just cutting our grass. I was cutting my grandparents' grass and Ms. Ivanko's grass. In the fall, I wasn't just raking our leaves. I was raking my grandparents' leaves and Ms. Ivanko's leaves. And in the winter, I wasn't just shoveling our snow. I was shoveling my grandparents' snow and Ms. Ivanko's snow. My grandparents had this long driveway. Ms. Ivanko had a a, a gravel uh, uh, driveway, and so you couldn't get a clean shovel across it. So the blizzard of 1993 hit. And I stepped out, I remember stepping outside, and the snow was to my thighs. And if you ever had a job just so enormous that for the first few minutes you just stare at it and just go, mm, 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 mm. (laughs) Like like somehow it's going to magically disappear, right? (laughs) So, So I shoveled all day. I shoveled and shoveled and shoveled. I got it all cleared out. And then my dad came home. As soon as he got out of his truck, I said, Dad, we got to have a conversation, man, because we, I, I mean, I've been thinking about, I got just reevaluated my whole life today, and I need to have a conversation. He said, what's up? I said, I really think that grandma and grandpa need a snowblower, and without missing a beat, he said, they have one. I was like, what? You mean to tell me I've been out here shoveling all day, and they got a snowblower? And he leaned toward me, and he said, you're their snowblower. <laughs> now, Listen. We say we want to see God bless and minister to the poor. But we have to understand, you're the snowblower. When you want to see cross-cultural love, if you want to see a cross-cultural community, you have to know that you're the snowblower. God could have snapped his fingers and got Israel out of Egypt, but he raised up a mediator. He could have judged their enemies on his own, but he raised up judges. He could have extended his kingdom by himself, but he raised up kings. And he has raised up the church to do all of this good and to bring all of this beauty and to bear all of this witness so that our neighbors will be brought in. How is Revelation 7 going to happen? Doxological diversity worked out by God's snowblower. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? I want you finally to take hope. Take hope. Your labors for the sake of cross-cultural love are not in vain. 
God redeems them all. They all play a part in God's greater work of bringing this final picture to pass. Remember, our neighbors are not our competitors. Grace and love are not a zero-sum game where more grace for them means less grace for me and more love for them means less love for me. No, we have been united to the ever-living fountain of all goodness and kindness. So let us pray that our impulses toward polarization would give way to lives of gospelization. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this glorious scene. We are reminded that many, if not most of us in here, are the ends of the earth. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you had a vision for sending your love and your redemption to the ends of the earth to find us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have grateful hearts. We pray that you would help us to be curious about our neighbors and about the difference represented around us. And we pray that you would help us to take it seriously, what's going on in our hearts and how we respond to difference and to see it as an essential part of our discipleship. Because after all, Jesus is the great example of love across difference. We praise you, Christ, because you could not have been more different than us. Yet and still you came to save us, to love us back to our senses, and to join us together as your people. So help us to remember these things and to pursue the life of cross-cultural love for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.